Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Let's get back to uh, the text here. In verse 26, it says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. What this has to do with anger, righteous anger versus unrighteous anger. And uh, I think what it's saying here is it's not saying you're not allowed to be angry. Was Christ angry? Yes. Yeah, on multiple occasions he was angry. I mean, this guy threw the money changers out of the temple. That was not an act of kindness. That was a man who was mad. Why was he mad? They're dishonoring God. Are you, the question is, do you, are you more mad when people dishonor you when they dishonor God? Dishonor God. Alright. Think about it. I mean, I, th- I think unfortunately a lot of us as Christians, we get more mad when we get caught off on the highway than we see somebody committing sin. And uh, I think one of the measures of your spiritual maturity would be what do you get angry about? The less you get angry about people offending you and the more you're angry about people offending God, the more you've grown in your spiritual life. Um, It's not wrong to be angry. It just says do not sin. Do not be uncontrolled. One of the things that the Bible does make really clear is that we need to have self-control. That's one of the fruit of the Spirit, self-control. If you're uncontrolled in your conduct, you're out of line. You're sinning. And why is that? It says, here, this is interesting, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. In other words, don't allow your anger to smolder. Don't let it to go on. Why? Resolve it. Because what happens if you don't? <coughs> give place to the devil. Unresolved anger will give place to the devil. That is why, for example, we need to learn to be very forgiving to other people because if you allow their faults to get into you, it will rot you to the bone. I've seen it happen. I know it. Somebody says something, they offends you, you let it stew on you, stew on you, stew on you, and after a while they can't do anything right, can they? Don't let the sun go down on your wrath because if you do, you've given place to the devil. You've given him a foothold. You've given an avenue of attack. And then another contrast is let him who stole steal no more but rather let him labor working with hands what is good that he may have something to give to him who has needs. Instead of stealing, work hard. How are you at your job? you work hard? You need to think about that. Um, what, the, the, the world, if they can get away with it, they will, won't they? But as a believer, you need to work hard, not only when people are there watching you, when people aren't watching you. You need to work hard. In order that you may have some extra to give to somebody who has a need. Not to indulge it upon yourself. One of the amazing statistics is that there's a statistic that says the more you make, the less you give. 
The more you make, the less you give. Why is that? Well, you know, I got a boat payment, a house payment, a car payment. You have a lot of money, you know. One of the marks of the new man is that he is a diligent laborer and is very willing to give to others who may not have as much as he has. He's not a tightwad, he's not a miser. And then another contrast, verse 29, do not let any corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that may impart grace to the hearers. What is your speech like? When you talk, what comes out? Um, think about it this way. I'd like somebody to walk around behind you with a tape recorder for 24 hours and play it back Sunday morning in church. Yeah. Think about that one. <coughs> the point is, the godly person is one who does not allow corrupt communication. What's the corrupt communication? What do you think of there? Coarse talk, jesting, joking, the double meaning. I mean, if you want to think of that, think of the stand-up comedian today. And most of the humor centers around stuff that you have no business talking about. The other thing here, too, is that here's, here's a question you need to ask yourself. After people have had a conversation with you, are they encouraged or discouraged? Do they like being around you or do they want to avoid you? Are you always positive or always whining about something? Always complaining? Always griping? I don't know about you, but I don't like to be around people who complain all the time. They're always complaining. Oh, nothing's never right. It says here, don't let that corrupt communication proceed. But what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to hearers. Instead of cutting people down, build them up. Are you building up other people? Do you encourage them? Now that doesn't mean that there comes a time when you have to tell them something straight because they need to be told something. But it means basically that you are an encouraging person to be around. People like you because you build them up. Have you ever been around somebody that's always tearing you down, always, always nitpicking, always griping about something, always... They drain you of your spiritual vitality. The world, what kind of speech is in the world? It's the corrupt speech. What kind of speech should we have? Edification speech, building people up. And then it says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How do you grieve the Holy Spirit of God? <coughs> How do you grieve the Holy Spirit? Sin. Sin. To him that knoweth to good, to good and doeth it not to him it is. Sin. Does your actions make God happy? Does your speech make God happy? Does it bring joy to him? And I think it also goes on, 
beyond this in verse 31 to talk about what it means to grieve. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Those are some very bad words that he uses. Bitterness, what's that? What's it mean to be bitter? You're resentful, you're angry, it's a smoldering anger. Bitterness rots your soul. What's the cure for bitterness? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. But they don't ask for it. So? They don't deserve it. Well, neither do you. It's interesting, you know, bitterness is the one sin that kills you. The person you're being bittered against, does it bother them? No, it bothers you. Yeah, I, mean, I don't even know about it. The bottom line is that we as believers, we're not to allow bitterness to be part of our character. You can't be bitter to people. If you're bitter, it is sin. And you are grieving the Holy Spirit of God. Wrath and anger, what's that? Wrath is the deep, smoldering, resentful anger <coughs> to other people. <coughs> anger is explosive outbursts. Wrath, and there's two words basically for anger and wrath in the New Testament. One is orge, O-R-G-A. It means deep, abiding, smoldering hatred. It's often used the wrath of God, the orge, the wrath of God. And there's thumos. Thumos is explosive. It's like throwing gas on a fire. It booms, it explodes, it shoots up in flames. And the two words used here are orge and thumos. Do not be angry. T-H-U-M-O-S. Remember that word we talked about last week, macrothumia? The root there is thumos, the explosive anger, to be long-suffering, to not explode. Clamor, what's that? Just a loud, raucous talking. Evil speaking, what's that? To talk bad of other people. I think this is probably one of the greatest sins we have. We're always talking bad about somebody else. Because it makes us look better if we make them look bad. <clears throat> We're not to speak evil of other people. It's amazing to me. I'll tell you what. I've seen it in our church. I've seen it in other churches. People who speak evil of the leadership, speak evil of others in the church. It's a self-perpetuating pile of ick that grows and grows and grows. Because if you truly love someone, do you always, are you always thinking the worst? What's amazing to me is how, and I've seen it here in this church, for example, Anytime the leadership has decided to do something, people assign the worst possible motives. It's like they get all the motives possible and they pick the worst one. Mm -hmm. No one ever thinks the best. They're always thinking the worst. They're always looking for the hidden meaning. They're always work, looking for the hidden agenda. The Bible says we're not to be doing that. We're not to always look for the worst. We're to look for the best. Love 
believes all things, hopes all things. Love is looking for the best, not the worst, in people. And it says you're to put this away with all malice. And instead, you're to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Instead of being angry and resentful and bitter, you are to be forgiving. Even as God has forgiven you, how has God forgiven you? All of it. Did He forgive you? Does God forgive you of your sin now even though you don't ask Him? In the eternal sense, yes, right? That's how He's forgiven you. Let me put it to you this way. There's no place in the body of Christ for an unforgiving spirit. There's no place. But you don't know what they did. It's irrelevant. Think about it. The least sin you get, compare the least sin you did against God with the most severe sin someone did against you. Which one's worse? The least sin you've done against God is infinitely worse than the greatest sin anyone's done against you. If God forgave you the least of the sins, what can you do to forgive someone of the greatest sin? Someone says you're most like God when you forgive. One of the greatest sins in the churches today is that we don't forgive other people. We allow bitterness and anger and resentment to, great, to grow and to grow and to grow. And after a while, it just rots everything. I mean, everything's just rotten. And the only way to get around that is to forgive. Now, you may not feel like it, right? Your feelings will come. Forgiving here is an act of the volition. It means that, that I, I, I release you from the consequences of what you did to me. In a sense that I will not hold your sin against you. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that mean that necessarily you will treat that person the same? No, there may be enduring consequences. But you've released them from a debt that they may owe you. You've released them from that. We're to do that in the body of Christ. That's part of body life. That's what you have to do in a home. Forgive other one, one another. If you allow this bitterness to grow and to grow and to grow, after a while it will just ride everything in sight. Then chapter 5 he says, Be imitators of God as dear children. Imitate, mimic God. Act like God as dear children. As children mimic their father, you mimic God. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. Walk in love towards one another. And if you want to know what love is, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is kind. Love is gentle. It's easily to be entreated. It's full of good works. It thinks the best. It does not rejoice in evil, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I have to ask myself the question as I look back 
over the years in the churches I've been, how little true love sometimes existed there. Now we always use different terms to describe our attitudes. We call it contending for the faith or sticking up for our rights or you can call it anything you want. I think the bottom line is it's a lack of love and forgiveness. And that will rot you as a church. That will rot you as a person. Well, you got to think about. I mean, Christ, uh, Paul certainly turned the other cheek, but yet he appealed to his rights as a Roman citizen. I mean, I think there's a certain amount. I don't think it's wrong to say that people need to treat us with respect, but if they don't, we can't allow that to be, we can't be bitter about it. Okay? We can't allow it to turn into bitterness. But yet we need to expect being mistreated by the world too. Well, what do you guys think? Where do you draw the line between allowing yourself to be a doormat and yet sticking up for your rights, so to speak. It's okay to draw the line and to distance yourself from situations that would cause you that harm. And I don't think that that's incorrect. I don't think that has to be set up like that. I think we're love and we're forgive. But if we are continually in a relationship with an individual constantly, hurting us, even in the same way. I mean, you're still to forgive, as Christ told the apostles, and he sins against you in the exact same day, many times. Each time he comes back and asks for forgiveness, you're to forgive. But at the same time, then you as an individual need to start making decisions for yourself. You may need to withdraw yourself from that situation where you're abused. And that, that doesn't mean you withdraw yourself up. completely. No. But rather, just distance yourself maybe. Christ did that. I mean, he distanced himself from the Pharisees. I mean, stop and think about it. Where did Christ do 90% of his ministry? Galilee. He stayed out of Judea. Why? Well, it was trouble being down in Judea. I mean, when he walked down there, everything lit up. And he knew that he had to avoid that. It's not wrong either to express that to the people. It's no. Christ did that as well. And I, and I think you, I think you need to express that, but I think it goes along with your attitude. You know, be respectful about it. Don't let them push you around. But yet, if they still push you around, you're to love them. In spite of that, you may have to remove yourself from that situation. And if any of you lack wisdom, pray. God will help you. I was going to say, 
two comments there. It's easy to love somebody that loves you. It's harder yet to love someone that doesn't love you. Yep. Of course you can And then I also had to say, talking about love and forgiveness and all that, the first thing that came to my mind is um, one of my stepdaughters, you know. It, it's, you know, I, I, my wife throws it at me all the time. She says, you know, that I have trouble forgiving her and, and loving her where she is and all that because I have a very good memory. I, I hate that, but I have a very good memory. I, I remember things. You don't know yet. Right, I don't forget. But, you know, she's trying real hard and everything, but yet she doesn't seem to use common sense or listen to you when you need it. Really, you know? We told her, don't marry this guy, you know? <laughs> she married him anyway. But, see, what kids fail to realize is all these consequences and that not only just affect them, they affect See, part of it here. Women a lot of times think it's going to get better once they have a child. But a lot it's of worse. it doesn't work that way. Here's a, here's a question. <coughs> here's a question. We're talking right here about forgiving one another and loving one another and that. Well, if you take that to extreme as a parent, when your kid does something wrong, what should you do? Oh, I forgive you. That's okay. You forgive, but there's consequences too. Because part of your job is what as a parent? Train. To train. And you better have a good memory. You know, remember I told you two weeks ago not to do that? Well, Dad, you know, I thought you said you forgave me. If you forgave me, you wouldn't have remembered that. No, that's not the point. Okay. There's a, there's a difference there. Um, you're to train your children, you know, and there are consequences. You still love them, but there are consequences. And the same thing, by the way, the same thing exists with God. If you commit sin, God may forgive you, but there may be consequences that you are going to face. Did God forgive J uh, David for his sin? Yet what happened to David's household? Meltdown. There are consequences that went beyond that. So we need to understand the difference between consequences and forgiveness. Verse 3 says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness must not be once named among you as is fitting for saints. There's a good one. Fornication, uncleanness, and covetousness. Three big bad sins. Let it not once be named among you. Do we have a problem with that in the church today? Yeah, we do. When Jimmy Swaggart fell into sin, what happened? <coughs> Give him a little time off. Smack his hand. Smack his hand. The Bible says, let it not once be named among you. Don't even let it come into your presence. Why is that? Because we are an example of what Christ wants the church to be. 
He did not save you to be a fornicator, to be unclean, and to be covetous. Now, by the way, it, just that third one there, covetousness, what would that do to 90% of the TV ministries you see? Shut them down. The basis of many of those ministries is covetousness. God will make you a millionaire. Why do you want to be a millionaire? More. More. Send me a thousand dollars, God will give you ten thousand back. More. Listen. Don't let covetousness be once named among you. And, and I think, I'll be honest with you, I think contentment is one of the great, a lack of contentment is one of the great sins in the church today. You're not, we're not happy with anything, are we? We don't like the preacher we got, we want a different one. We don't like the car we got, we want another one. We don't like the house we're in, we get a bigger one. We don't like the job we have, we want to make more money. Whatever we have, we want something else. You know? And if the wife doesn't make you happy, you get rid of her and get somebody else to make you happy. Because what you have... I'm going to have to counsel you two guys. Um, he, he, he did. Boy. But the point is, covetousness, we're not to cultivate covetousness. That's always wanting something more. We have that in the church today. We always want, you're never happy with what God has given you. He says, I don't want this to even be named among you. I don't want to even hear it there. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting. What's that? Well, that's the dirty talk. That's the joking around about things you shouldn't be joking about. Filthiness is the word is the most um, probably uh, direct word there. It's just talking about evil speech, all the sexual innuendo you hear, filthy talk. There's some people that every other word that comes out is a filthy word. How do you get around that in the workplace? I mean, it's like, I mean, they know I don't even want to go there. So I'll, a lot of times I'll just walk away, but sometimes you just, you know, it comes out so quicker that, you know, just... ignore it. It's interesting at work, you know, they send around a lot of jokes, but I don't get some of them. Because they know better. I made it clear I don't want a certain type of joke, and they, I don't get it. You know, I don't expose myself to it. They honor that. They had, it was funny, they had a little computer program you took, which uh, was called your corruption index. I don't know if I told you this, where you answer these questions to tell you how bad you were. And uh, they answered these questions. One of them was like 280, you know, the score was 280 and 180. I took it and I had a score of 18. And I said, I'm too corrupt to be in. He says, he says church is too corrupt for you to be around. That's what the little thing, you know, you're, not, you're, you're too good to be in church kind of thing. But they joke about that. But they respect that. You know. Um, you just don't want to expose yourself to that kind of 
filthy, jesting stuff. Because it, it rubs off in you. Um, I'll tell you where you get some of this filthiness, and that's in the modern day soap operas. Now that'll really melt your brain. Yeah. Seeing some of the stuff that goes on in there. We get married two or three times. Yeah, they don't even marry anymore. They just live together. What's foolish talking? Foolish talking or coarse jesting. Those all have to do with just filthy gutter type language and laughing and joking about things you should not be joking about. It doesn't, it's not saying here you're not allowed to laugh as a Christian. It doesn't say you're not allowed to tell a joke. You're allowed to tell jokes. I heard a real good joke this week from Pastor. He talked about this blind guy that went into this bar. And he, and he asked, he, he said, anybody here want to hear a blonde joke? And uh, the guy sitting next to him said, well, let me tell you something. He said, the bartender here, he's 300 pounds, and he's blonde. And the bouncer of the bar is 280, he lifts weights, and he's blonde too. And me and my three buddies who are here from the professional football team. We're all linebackers, and we're all blonde. Now, do you really want to say a blonde joke? The guy says, no, I said, better not. I have to explain it six times. <laughs> I emailed him. <laughs> you emailed him that? I love it. That's great. <laughs> I almost drove off the road when he said that. That was a great one. <laughs> I played six times. Doesn't mean you're not allowed to joke. Yeah. I get about fifteen of those, you know. and I use them different places. And that my some yeah. of them expecting to hear them on Sundays, and I never. <laughs> it's the one. It's like the it's the what's the the two blondes were arguing in the woods about you know that's deer track no that's moose track no that's deer track well the train came and ran them over. Oh. Uh, yeah, I think uh, I <laughs> uh, yeah. So the whole point is, it's not, it's not that you're not allowed to joke. And not allowed, you're not allowed to laugh and have fun. But the coarse joking, and you know what that is. We know what that is. That's not to be once named among us. Why? That, that, that is, where does that come from? comes from your heart, right? Out of the heart proceeds all of this stuff. Now, you expect that in the world, don't you? But you don't expect that in the body of Christ. How can you, at the one point, build up people with your tongue while at the same time joking and tearing them down and laughing and jesting about things that are not appropriate? says, don't let that be once named among you. Rather, giving of thanks for this you know. You know this. This is no secret that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. A fornicator, an unclean person, and a covetous man do not have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. What does that mean? If your manner of life is that of a fornicator, you are not a Christian. If your manner of life is somebody who is an unclean person, you're always dwelling with the dirty joke crowd. Your mind is filled with, with filthiness and, and lust. 
you're not an inheritor of the kingdom of God. And if you're covetous, if you're always wanting something more, if you're always lusting after more things, bigger houses, better cars, if your life is consumed with the acquisition of wealth and more, you're not a believer. Why? Because that is the character of the lost person, not to save. Doesn't mean you can't fall into that. It doesn't. It does mean that is not the manner and style of your life. So when someone says I'm a Christian homosexual, there is no such thing. I'm a Christian adulterer. No, there isn't. I'm a Christian thief. No. I'm a Christian murderer. No. If that's what you are. You're not a Christian. That's different. <laughs> And then here it says in verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, therefore do not be partakers with them. The wrath of God is coming down on people who live this way. Why do you want to be with them? See, as a, Let me ask a question. As a born-again believer, can you be a fornicator? As a manner of life? No. No. That's what Paul's saying. It's not your manner of life. If you fall in that, what does God do? He judges. He might even take your life. He might even take your life. I was talking with somebody this week about somebody I knew very well has decided to leave the church and go live with a young woman. Left his family. I asked this person, I said, does it ever occur to him he may not even be a Christian? This is not a one-time thing. This is a manner of life. Is it possible he's not even a Christian? I don't see the halo. I can't see the E on the forehead. But I'll tell you what. It, make, it draws me up short. Is he even a believer? He may be. Now, if he is, what will God do? God will judge him. God will judge him. If he is not, what will happen? He'll do what he wants. And I'll tell you, I was really... I was really... I was really uh, Disappointed, to say the least. Extremely so. And uh, it made me stop and think. Because you know, if it wasn't for the Spirit of God, we'd all do the same thing. You do know that. That's the way sin is. The only way you can have victory over sin is not because of your strength, because of God's strength within you. But if your character, if your manner of life is that of a fornicator, an unclean person, or a covetous person, don't claim to be a Christian. Don't deceive yourself. That's what it's saying here. Let no one deceive you. If that's the way you're living, let no one say, well, I remember when you walked the aisle and signed the prayer card. Don't worry about it. You're in. Don't let anyone deceive you. Specifically, yourself. Deceive yourself. Don't deceive yourself. Why is that? Well, verse 8, where you were once in darkness, but now you're in the light. 
You used to be in darkness. That, that's the way the world was. You're not there. You're in the light now. 1 John, if we walk in the light, he's in the light. We have fellowship one with another. But if we hate our brother, we walk in darkness and we're a liar. It means to walk in the light. Walk as children of light, not as children of the darkness. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. It's saying there, as children of light, walking in the light, what should your desire be? To honor the Lord. Is that your desire? To honor the Lord. Um, now, what's, what's interesting here, verse 10, look at verse 10, it says, finding out. What does that imply? Take some effort. So, so the idea is saying, well, I don't want to learn anything else because I might be responsible for it. That's not what 10 says. It says we're to take effort to find out what God wants us to do so we can do it. And by the way, when you find out what God wants you to do, it's not an optional thing. Well, you know, maybe I'll do it, maybe I won't. No, you have no option. If God calls you to do something, we are to do that. If, it's, if we find out as we're reading the Bible saying, oh, you know, God said I'm not to do that, what does that mean you're not to do? Not to do that. What happens is, well, that's the Bible's opinion. That's what we have today. The Bible's just another opinion. The Bible's not an opinion, it's a command. You do it or you don't. You obey it or you don't. And you need to find out what is acceptable to the Lord. What, what, what pleases God? What makes Him happy? That's what we want. Not the filthiness and the coarse talk and the jesting. Not living like the old man. See, that's what Paul's drawing distinction here. He, throughout, starting in chapter 4 all the way through here, he's saying... This is what you used to be. Don't walk like that because the character of people who walk like that is they're in darkness, they're damned, they're under God's judgment. You're not that way. And if you act that way as a manner of life, then don't deceive yourself by making you think that you're in the light because you're not. Don't deceive yourself. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Don't chum around with it. Don't chum around with it. Verse 11 will have a lot to do with what you see on television. It will have a lot to do with what movies you go to see. It will have a lot to do with who you hang around with. Now, as a believer, you've got to hang around unbelievers, right? But you don't have to do what they do. No, I don't. That's a good question, though. Is it possible to be a Christian and for a long period of time walk in the darkness? I would say it's not for a long period of time because what will happen? One of two things will happen. You will be convicted and you will repent or God will take your life. 
judge you. You know, I, I don't believe, there's, and the reason I say that, all right, is because there are people that they say, well, you know, you've got three levels of people. You've got pagans. You've got carnal Christians. And then you've got spiritual Christians. And the carnal Christian, for example, you talk to somebody and say, are you a Christian? Yeah, you know, when I was five years old, I went to church and I walked the aisle and I asked Jesus to come into my heart. When's the last time you've been in church? Oh, about 50 years ago. When's the last time you read your Bible? Well, I don't really own one. When's the last time you pray? Well, when I was five years old, I prayed. But I'm a Christian. I'm a carnal one. Are they? I don't believe in carnal Christianity as a way of life. I don't believe that can be your existence. That's what I'm trying to say. Now, as a Christian, can you act carnally? Yeah, we all do. But is that a continuing pattern where you're just that way? You've not been to church for 25 years. You've not read your Bible in 25 years. You've not prayed in 25 years. Are you a real Christian? I don't think so. Don't fake yourself out into thinking that you are. Because probably you're not. If it, especially if it doesn't bother you. It's very interesting. Um, one of my best friends hasn't been in church in five years. He won't go to church. Last time he heard one of the pastors on our staff had some health problems, he was hoping that they would die. And he was disappointed that God didn't kill him. Is that man a Christian? What are the chances of him being a Christian? I think we've all I think we've all been there done that sometime in our lives. What's first John What's First John 1 say? First John 1, 2, and 3. If a man says, I walk in the light, and I hate my brother, how dwells the love of God in him? When I look at First John and I look at this man, I would have to conclude he's not a Christian. Not again, you know, I, I can't see the halo, and you know, we understand that. Does he show any evidence of being guilty about thinking this way and not going to church? No. No. Even non Christians go to church. He won't go to church. There's too many hypocrites. He can't stand the Christians. What about the Christians who is living carnally, feels convicted about it? doesn't make changes with it, but has lived this way for four or five years, occasionally prays, occasionally does a Bible study because they feel guilty about it, but ultimately there hasn't been a significant change. But they feel, but you notice what you just said, they feel guilty about it, they're under conviction. That's the operative idea here, under conviction. That's most, most of the people in, in 
the college age group that I grew up with. Mm -hmm. Most of my friends. Yeah, see, I'm not saying they are, they're not. I mean, you can never say that. I'm saying, I look at what the Bible says. It says, if I hate my brother, I can't claim validly to be a believer. I can't claim that. I can't. If you hate your brother whom you have seen, how can you love God whom you've not seen? I have a real problem with that. You're a Christian. Some guy breaks into your house and kills your wife, and you, even though you're a Christian, you hate this guy. You you know, you can't stand the sight of him. And as hard as you would like to just forgive this guy, you can't do it. Does that make you not a Christian? Here again, I, I think we're talking I'm not talking about singular. <clears throat> I'm not talking about singular people. I'm talking about everybody. Right, there's a big difference. I'm talking about manner of life. I would say in that case, though. That could be a very normal response at a time mm -hmm. that a person's anger will turn. See, that's why even with your friend next door and everything, you can't just say he's not a Christian. No, I can't. Because of a one time or one person. No, you can't say that. I'm saying I'm, I'm observing a man here who's not been to church for five years, has no desire to go to church. And not only that, but he actually wants to see people Die. He wants to see God kill people. Evidently, he's got a lot of bitterness against your pastor. It's not just the pastor, it's everybody. What about the psalmist who calls for God to take vengeance on his enemies? It's not he's hard hearted. The psalmist, huh? He could be mixed up. I agree. It is hard. I, I'm, I'm just saying, the reason I'm saying that is because I struggle with that. I struggle with that. If you don't walk with the Lord, and then all of a sudden five you just stop walking with Him, I mean, He will. You know, and, and, and the, the point, the... What, what, if, what if you're a, a big, strong Christian all of your life, and then something happens in your life and you blame God for it, and you like totally turn and walk away from God for a while. Does that mean you're now not a Christian and you're not saved? No. If you're truly born again, you're born again. The psalmist walked away from God for a year. He said, uh, "He said my fluids dried up within me. He was miserable." I'm talking about somebody who's not walked with the Lord. They're not miserable about it. They don't care about it. They're not under conviction. I'm just saying they have no valid claim to be a Christian. I'm not saying they are or they're not. I'm saying you have no valid claim to be that. Oh, yeah, it is. I'm just saying if I'm looking at external evidence and I compare his life with the Bible, there's no evidence there that there is. So how should I treat him as a believer or an unbeliever? Probably treat him as an unbeliever. That's very hard. It's a warning to me. Oh, I'm not. To, I mean, I'm not to hate the guy or anything like that. I'm still exhibit love and, and things like that. Yeah. So by him being your friend, 
He doesn't want to hang around me because I'm positive. Okay. And you better let him know. And quite honestly, I don't want to hang around him because I don't need to listen to his constant bitterness and anger and, and hatred of every Christian. I have a tape of his at home where he talked about how to how to deal with bitterness and forgiveness. And he hasn't done that. So I'm Good idea. I'm just saying, all I'm saying here is what Paul is saying here. Saying if you claim to be a Christian, the bottom line of what Paul is saying is if you claim to be a Christian, you ought to act like it. Right. And if you're not acting like it, you have no valid claim that you are. He says here, it's shameful to even speak of those things which are done of them in secret. We uh, joke about things we have no business joking about. That's not to be the nature of the believer. We're not to be that kind of person. But all things are exposed and made manifest by the light for whatever makes manifest is light. One of the things to ask yourself is do people not like to hang around you because you're always nagging them about what they say or just because the light of your witness is uncomfortable for them? Uncomfortable. Should be the latter, right? Therefore, he says, Awake you, sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Some say that's an early hymn of the church that they quote there. We're not to be asleep. We're not to be insensate. We're to be alive. We're to be walking in the light. And see, verse 15, that you walk wisely, circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Walk in wisdom. What is wisdom? What's biblical wisdom? Understanding things from God's perspective. Understanding spiritual truth and walking in it. See, there's a difference. Walk wisely. It, it, it doesn't mean no wisdom. It, it, do it. Do it. If you're not doing it, you don't know it. Walk certain, and then it says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. What's that? Buy up opportunity. Strike while the iron's hot. The whole point here is that, and part, partly, quite honestly, this is what drives me a lot of times. The only opportunity I have to do something for God, or really, that I have is now, not later. We live in an evil age. If you're going to do anything positive for God, you've got to do it while you can. There may come a day when you can't. It's buying the time. The idea there is buying up the time. I think it's what Moses said in, in Psalm 90, which, by the way, you know was written by Moses. Teach me to number my days that I may apply my heart to wisdom. You all don't live forever. This hit me when I turned 40. All of a sudden I realized, you know, if I live to be 80, my life's half gone. If I live to be 80. It's like almost when I turned 40, this chemical went off in my brain and all of a sudden I started thinking of my own mortality and 
I'm not going to be here forever. And when my life is over and when it's time for me to depart is there, am I going to say, you know, I wish I would have done more for the Lord. I would like to say with the Apostle Paul, I've done what God gave me to do. Which, by the way, you can do. You can do what God's given you to do. Redeem the time. Do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It's possible for you to know the will of the Lord. Say that again. It's possible for you to know the will of the Lord. Where does God reveal His will? Just know the Word. That's it. The will of God is not some mystical thing hidden behind some rock someplace that hopefully you can stumble over it and find it. God's revealed His will in the Word. And then it says, Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's talking about control. The whole notion there, be filled, the word for filled means to fill a sail with wind. To drive the boat along. And he says, just like a drunk is totally intoxicated by the alcohol to the extent that his entire actions and attitudes and voice and thoughts are influenced by that, so should we be influenced by the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be filled by the Holy Spirit. Now this is interesting. If you, you, if you look at the parallel passage in Colossians to this, it talks about letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Here it talks about let the Spirit dwell in you richly. So what can you infer about being filled with the Spirit and being filled with the Word of God? Same. So if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, learn the Word of God. Learn it and do it. And what will you do? Well, you'll speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the results of being filled with the Word, one of the results of being filled with the Spirit, is one, there is harmony, singing, joy, harmony, and there is thankfulness for everything. For the good things and the bad things, for everything there is thankfulness. And then verse 21, there is submission to one another. You're not out for your own interest. You're not allowed to get your own way all the time. So you don't need, you know, you know why people leave the church for the most part? They don't get their way. They don't get their way. Now, they'll, they'll say it's some theological issue or something else. But no, that, the bottom line is they didn't get their way. We're to submit to one another in the fear of God. We're to love one another and submit and sing and have harmony and give thanks. Well, next week what we're going to do is talk about our relationships. Husband, wife, parent, child, employer, employee. And we'll finish Ephesians next week. This is the seventh class. We had four in Galatians and three in this. So, all right, well, next week it's pizza week. So let's close in a word of prayer before we leave. Father, thanks so much for this time. I pray that we think about what we've learned tonight, that you'd open our hearts, that we may have understanding. We're grateful for all good things you've given us, and just thank you for everything in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. 
This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.